Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and I hope you're well wherever you are in the world listening to this episode. Continuing with our series of uh, interviews with women in AI winners, today is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Camille Goldstone-Henry. She's a CEO and founder of Xylo Systems. She has got not one, but two awards at the Women in AI. She is the Trailblazer 2022, and she won the Climate in AI category as well. She also won the Women of the Future 2021. She is an animal bioscientist and a Camilleroy descendant. Camille, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for that warm introduction, Nikki. I'm so excited to be on today. Listen, um, so happy I saw you receive your award at the awards night. It was a spectacular evening. Um, Andra, just I don't know how she managed to do it, but she put together a phenomenal evening. Congratulations on your two awards, firstly. Thank you so much. It was such an honour to be awarded not one, but two awards. And yeah, it was a huge shock on the night. So really grateful to the Women in AI Awards. It was a spectacular evening. I don't know if you felt the energy in the room and it was so contagious and just mind blowing to see all these accomplished women together. It's really amazing what energy a group of, you know, really intelligent, driven, ambitious uh, women bring to a room. Like I could honestly say the whole room was buzzing and every single conversation I had with every finalist and the other incredible industry partners in the room was just, I was mind blown, everyone I, I spoke to. So I'm super lucky to have been um, involved in that group of women. Yeah, look, I mean, I, you richly deserve your award. And I, of course, we have to pay kudos to the sponsors because they've played a huge part in all of this. I was reading your bio and I was just thinking if I come back to earth, I want to be you because you just sound as though you had such an idyllic upbringing. Talk us through it and um, how this has shaped you into the person you are today. Oh, that is such, such a compliment. Uh, so I grew up in Newcastle, New South Wales. So I'm currently living in Sydney. So just about two hours, two hours north of here. I had such a like a quintessential coastal Aussie upbringing. I spent a lot of time with my parents and my siblings, my sisters on the beach, surfing, surf lifesaving, bushwalking, a lot of camping when I was little. And that experience really tethered me to nature and uh, really embedded in me the importance of nature uh, and also the importance of preserving nature for future generations and preserving what we do have uh, because it brings a sense of purpose, it brings a sense of well-being, it brings a sense of health to every single one of us. Uh, my parents are also really big into sustainability. So I had sustainability practices embedded me from like pretty much, you know, as I was born, we had lots of uh, animals at home, we grew our own food. So from a really young age, I knew that I wanted to work in sustainability and more specifically uh, it, with wildlife, working with wildlife. My mom, my mom always tells this story and it embarrasses me but I love it as well uh, whenever we used to go down to the beach I used to like collect hermit crabs and want to take them home as as pets but I'd always end up releasing them before we left and you know that experience I just wanted to help animals so when I finished high school and, and went off to university I studied animal and veterinary bioscience at the University of Sydney and that was such an incredible experience 
and landed me a role at uh, the not-for-profit the Zoo and Aquarium Association, which is a peak industry body for, for zoos and aquariums across Australia, New Zealand and some in Southeast Asia. And in that job, I got to work on the coolest projects. I was their conservation manager. So I played a huge role in uh, some large conservation projects here in Australia, but also some around the world, mostly those that uh, needed a, a captive breeding portion of their recovery. So species that were declining in the wild, they need a little bit of help. So we'd breed them up in captivity and release them back into the wild to bolster that population. So that was really my job i loved it the biggest one i worked on was the tasmanian devil so i got to do lots of trips down to to tassie and have some incredible experiences in the wild but it was really during that time i saw a lot of gaps in how we manage conservation around the world uh it could be a lot more efficient there's a lot of duplication of efforts and that just really comes down to communication and information sharing, particularly data. Being a scientist, I have an affinity for data. I'm a self-professed data nerd. Uh, and so as we see the technologies of data advancing, we can harness this power to help us drive efficiency and conservation and help us achieve the conservation goals much faster and at much at a reduced cost than we currently can now. And so that led me to found my startup, Silo Systems, and we're focusing on aggregating conservation data so that we can make better, faster and cheaper decisions for our species and helping us to essentially turbocharge wildlife conservation around the world so that we can preserve what we have left for future generations, because we only have about 10 to 15 years left to really enact serious change. I know. So just going back to your work at the, um, the zoo, the orange belly parrot that I saw you were also involved in. So I had to click on that and read through all of that. I love good news stories. You know, when you, I think we should just have a website that just says good news stories. And when you're feeling down, our, please listeners, I do follow Camille on her uh, LinkedIn page and go to all her posts and you'll see her work. And then you can see what I'm talking about, about this little bird that the numbers on our um, on the increase and uh, it just it just made me feel oh look there's still hope for us there is still hope for us absolutely there is still time left to you know save these species and particularly the critically endangered species back in 2016 2017 I was working on the orange belly parrot which is a small parrot species that migrates between Tasmania and Victoria, it's the smallest migratory bird in the world and only one of two migratory parrots. So it's really important to preserve this species. When I was working on it then, there were less than 50 left in the wild and we were watching them decrease every single breeding season. I was quite early on in my career. So that experience for me was really quite devastating. And because conservation is so under-resourced, it was getting to the point where we were having discussions as to whether we continue pouring resources into saving this bird or not. And I'm so glad that the conservationists that are working on it continue to work on it because we're starting to see this population increase now. And it really is a conservation success story and goes to show what can happen when you bring a group of ambitious and passionate conservationists together. Look, I suspect this is a tip of the iceberg in terms of species that we're aware of that are in danger. The rest are just because they're not on our radar, they're already extinct. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many species in this world and a huge percentage that we haven't actually discovered yet. And 
the impacts that we're having on ecosystems and environments uh, driving these some species to extinction that we haven't even found yet. So a great example of this is the Christmas Island pipistrelle. It's a little bat species that uh, was, its habitat was on Christmas Island here in Australia. Uh, scientists discovered it uh, in the 2000s and before they could actually send scientific expeditions out there to assess the population in the wild, it went extinct. So that just shows you how fast you need to act and how much we don't know about our natural world around us. And how precious it is. I think that's, that's um, your life. When you see, you know, I talk to friends daily where things happen to them and they get sick and, you know, and in a blink of a second, your life is over. That's for everyone. Life is really precious. Absolutely. And our, our natural life and our environmental world is, is so, so precious. It gives us clean air. It gives us fresh water. It gives us cultural identity. It even drives our economy. So I think it's really important not to underestimate how important biodiversity and our natural world is to humans as a species. So this just seems like this is just a natural segue that you started, Zylo. Um, talk to me about, like, are you funded? Um, how did your journey start? Most startups, is, it's a grueling thing and you wonder whether you should be doing this. Did you go through all this angst of going, oh my goodness, should I be doing this? I should be doing something else? Absolutely. It is uh, it is an absolute roller coaster, but it's also probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life because I get to work on a problem that I'm really passionate about, I really care about, but that is also really needed in the world. And I think that's the power of startups, entrepreneurism and innovation is that it does have the potential to tackle some of these big issues that we're seeing around the globe, like biodiversity loss, like climate change, like poverty. So it was a huge decision to start up uh, silo systems back in 2020 but I saw a huge problem and I wanted to solve it and I knew that we needed to solve it soon so that really drove me to you know get stuck in and, and start figuring out exactly how can we solve this uh, and that's where I discovered the the wonder of AI and advanced analytics and, and that was really the kickstarter for all of me uh, but yes we have been running on pretty much a shoestring since 2020 we've had a little bit of funding in which has helped us along the way uh, help us build out the the platform itself so it's a cloud-based platform using AI uh, help us build that out, help us bring in some of the technical expertise that we need to help us along the way, like cloud architects and developers. So last year I won the Australian Women's Weekly Women of the Future Award, and that brought in $40,000 into the startup, which was really absolutely changing for the trajectory of us uh, and has allowed us to grow really quickly in six months. Uh, and this is the power of funding for startups is that, you know, they can scale much quicker. Uh, we've received a little bit of funding through various uh, other grants and accelerators. Last year, I did the uh, Taronga Hatch Accelerator. So this is the accelerator based at Taronga Zoo, and they provided some equity-free funding there. And, of course, the Women in AI Awards, the uh, Trailblazer Award, came with a, a, prize, a cash prize as well. So it's all these little bits of funding that have helped us get to where we are now. Uh, but as all startups, you know, you, you build the initial product, you need to test it with your customers and you need to make sure that it's going to solve the problems that they have. The next stage for us is to uh, raise capital. 
uh, and we are going to need a significant amount of capital to really roll out this critical technology to not just Australia but the world in kind of the next two to three years so that's our next phase so if there's any investors out there listening please get in touch yeah get off your um your i don't want to say ass but get off your bum and this is a really worthy cause you know you say forty thousand dollars and really congratulations um i'm not belittling that but forty thousand dollars is really nothing you know if you look at if you look at companies raising six million you know you'd be thinking um this would just be an obvious worthy cause for people to be investing money in i hope you've got a serious mentor that's um are you doing the pitching or who's doing your pitching for your capital rise? I, I do all the pitching. So okay. I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of Xylo Systems. Um, and so I look after kind of the, the CEO role. I mean, I guess it's pretty much too early to call me a CEO, but, you know, the roles that a CEO would take on, I take on in our startup. And then um, my co-founder, Jada, is our chief product officer. So she's in charge of all of the, the technical development of the platform itself. All right. Well, I hope you're getting a lot of practice with your pitch and you do it through a varied audience that don't do it through to the same people because people are going to have different questions and different responses and they're going to, you know, so um, I wish you the best of luck. And if I can help you put you in touch with any investors, please hit me up after the talk. Thank you. That's um, so sweet. Yeah. No, look, I think it's a fantastic. Um, I think it's a fantastic start. Now, tell us exactly what Xylo Systems does. Talk us through it. So when you have endangered species, you have lots of different stakeholders and organisations working to save that species collaboratively. And, and that's really the key here is we cannot save a species with one organisation or one person. Uh, and so these stakeholders look like their government departments, their conservation organisations like WWF, their zoos and wildlife parks. They're also private landholders and community groups. Each stakeholder holds a very important piece of the conservation puzzle and very important information in, in the form of data. But currently, these stakeholders don't have an easy way to connect and share this critical information and therefore make informed decisions uh, with that uh, data. So really data-driven data uh, decisions for our endangered species. This is obviously leading to siloed and duplicated efforts across the world and across our country, and it's wasting the already finite conservation time and money that we have left. So Xylo is a cloud-based platform that aggregates this conservation data, it processes it, and it provides information back to the stakeholders in the form of visualization, but also AI uh, data, AI decision support, so that they can decide what ways they can better deploy their finite resources and what is going to help them achieve their conservation goals faster. So first and foremost, we're a data collaboration, data aggregation platform, and then we support decision-making using, using technologies. So this is really important because using AI and decision support allows these stakeholders to uh, perhaps be alerted to some avenues or some strategies that they might not have thought of themselves. So are you using um, assistive technology such as drones to get the data for you or how, did, how are you mining the data? How are you getting it? So there's a, there's a few strategies here. There are a lot of other entities out there using um, drones to monitor species in the wild, using other sensing technologies to monitor species in the wild. So really we're not about um, reinventing the wheel here. So a lot of these organisations already have that 
that data. Uh, but we are in the business of bringing that data together with open source data sets, as well as any other data sets that these organizations are working with, like genomics data sets, um, more general environmental data, like temperature and humidity. Uh, we bring and aggregate all of this data together. This is really important because everyone is using different methodologies to collect their data, particularly when it, when it comes to monitoring species in the wild. So it's kind of hard for these organizations to aggregate that data themselves. So we're using artificial intelligence to train it up on the different methodologies and allow it to aggregate the data much faster than you can do manually. We are looking to uh, implement remote sensing um, and kind of node networks across some of the organizations that we're working with. So. We're currently working with Taronga Zoo on a, a critically endangered snail species, uh, and they're from Norfolk Island, so quite off the coast of New South Wales, a very remote location. Uh, and all of the data collection is, is very manual at the moment. So we're working with a hardware provider um, to potentially set up a node network on Norfolk Island so that we can have real-time updates of what's happening in the environment to help inform how to save this species. So we are starting to move into the hardware space, but more focused on, on data aggregation. It sounds a bit like watching the penguins at Phillip Island with their camera that they've set up. You can watch these little snails maneuver around. Exactly. I, expect Jeff to, I expect Jeff to be very patient watching them move around though. So how many people have Zala systems or have you got in the team at the moment? There's just two of us, the two co-founders, so myself and Jada. Uh, and, you know, we are a small but mighty team. <laughs> Being two oh, strong, so ambitious women, we get a lot done. <laughs> listen, the small is no problem. Uh, Exaptic is a one woman. I've got people helping me when I need it. But, yeah, listen, and I think um, small is, is it's perfect because when you need to make decisions, there's not like a whole hierarchy of people you need to consult with and you go, let me take this to management. Oh, I am management. Okay, I'll give you the decision immediately. So there, there is value in that. Oh, so important in the early stages of the startup. When you're innovating, you're building really quickly, you're testing really quickly, you need to have a small and agile team to, um, you know, bring solutions to the table, test them and, and, you know, say, did they work or not? So we don't have, yeah, that management hierarchy that could potentially slow you down. So are you at the moment just focusing on Australian wildlife and, and what's happening here? Yeah, we are just focusing on Australia right now and working with a, a few partners to test um, some endangered species through the system. So we've got a, a small number of endangered species and a small number of partners that we're testing the system with. Once we get it all um, tested and validated, then we are planning to expand out to uh, the top 100 priority species that was released by the federal government last year. So there's 100 species that represent the most endangered or kind of the flagship species um, in Australia. So we'll roll it out really quickly to those 100 species. And then from there, we can um, quite quickly scale to the rest of the species on the threatened species register, which is in the thousands um, kind of in the next year. And hoping by 2023 to go global. So head over to the US and start rolling this out there. Oh, fabulous. And then just our luck, someone will find you from there. And then this brilliant Australian innovation will go there and that will just annoy the hell out of me. So Australians that have got money, invest now, please. <laughs> it's not just a great opportunity because there is, you know, there is potential for return here. It's also a fantastic opportunity for impact on the environment. It's really a no-brainer. Yeah, of course. So, um, 
You know, when we talk about the planet, I was listening to a, a talk on ABC yesterday about our footprint in the clothing industry. And um, it came as a shock to me that Australia is the second, um, after the USA, we are the second most uh, consumeristic in our clothing and the landfill. And I think the figures that they said we would buy something like, I probably have to get this right now, but 26, I don't want to say ton, but it could be ton um, clothing a year. And then we throw something like enormous amounts of waste out there. And the program was centered around people now, um, you can take the clothes back and then designer clothing, they sell back to you. What are your thoughts around this? I know this is a little bit off topic, but I think you probably would have an opinion on this anyway. I do have a very strong opinion on this. I think the rise of social media uh, has also given rise to fast fashion um, and has driven a lot of consumers to consume fashion in an unsustainable way. And, you know, it's along the value chain here. So these organisations and, and fashion brands are producing these clothes in such an unsustainable way. And, you know, the fashion industry, I think it contributes to a 10% of global emissions, carbon emissions every year, and is one of the biggest users of water and therefore one of the biggest contributors to wastewater. So at the very organization and fashion brand level, they're already having a huge impact on the environment. And then all the way down to the consumer level, there is this fast fashion must have, you know, the latest trends for like, you know, the next two weeks. Some great examples of this are like H&M and Zara. They are the epitome of fast fashion. A couple of weeks ago, there was the Coachella Festival in the US. Uh, and in recent years, Coachella has been dubbed the Influencer Olympics. And this has really been driven by fast fashion brands using Coachella as a launching pad to launch their, you know, their new lines or to get the word out there about um, their fashion brands to consumers. And you can pretty much watch Coachella in real time because of the number of influences that are there. And I think they're driving this fast fashion uh, momentum. I did a calculation as to uh, the carbon footprint of an Australian influencer going to a Coachella weekend uh, sponsored by one of these fast fashion brands. The biggest one is probably Revolve, which is a US-based fast fashion brand. Uh, and I was quite shocked with the carbon footprint that one influencer had over four days at Coachella. They used the carbon budget of what one person should use in two years based on the IPCC recommendations for maintaining carb, uh, global warming at or below 1.5 degrees. So in four days, one influencer had two years worth of impact. It just blows my mind. And yes, they do go for the festival itself and the music, but they're primarily there to promote fast, fast fashion. And I think that needs to change. I think we need to make sustainability the next fashion trend and we're already starting to see this emerge with uh with fashion brands like Patagonia, Kathmandu have a fantastic ad campaign at the moment that shows you how their puffer jackets break down in a year which is really awesome and I love to see it so I would really encourage people to not buy into the fast fashion trends and to really invest in slow fashion buy vintage pieces buy secondhand and if you can't buy secondhand buy sustainably and reuse it as much as you can. I know we we suddenly came, you know, growing, growing up as a child in South Africa, I had a very limited amount of clothes. I think I probably had about four outfits. That was it. Two pairs of shoes, you know, like, and I didn't think anything about it, but I, I 
I don't think young kids, young girls are growing up like this today anymore. And I think um, it's the affordability of clothes. You know, if you go to, uh, you know, even Target, Kmart, you know, these very, very affordable shops, you go in there and a shirt costs $6. Like, why bother washing this thing? You know, like, I, I, it's just, I don't know how they do it. It's yeah, it's definitely the cost of these items of clothing, but also that instant gratification that again, I think social media has driven us to, to have this mind mindset of instant gratification, you know, that's in stores this week, and you must have it now, but in two weeks, it's not going to be in fashion anymore. So you just throw it away. And it's super unsustainable and has such a huge impact and, and footprint on our environment and, and the world as a, as a whole. Camille, so the project that you're working on to raising funds to conserve wildlife uh, through AI, um, I'm, I'm surprised that a, a, someone in South Africa or Africa hasn't reached out to you and know about your work and go, we need to get you involved there as well. I have actually had some expressions of interest from uh, organisations and governments overseas, which has been quite shocking that the word is getting out there. I, I've had some um, interest from the Mexican government and also the French government and have had a, a few expressions of interest from some US-based organisations, which is really cool. It's not to say that AI isn't being used in conservation. It is. It's just that people aren't using it yet in the way that we're using it for, for decision support. People are more so using AI at the moment, particularly out of you know, South Africa, and it's used quite heavily in, in the US and, and Southeast Asia, uh, is image identification. So uh, monitoring species in the wild using camera traps. So when you set up a, a camera trap, you pop on a tree and you leave it there for you know, months and months. And that's the kind of the David Attenborough type um, monitoring you'd see on his documentaries. But what that generates is thousands and thousands of images, a lot of them actually redundant because it's, they don't have any animals in it. So what we can train AI algorithms to do is to identify the different animals in those pictures or even identify when there is an animal in those pictures. So uh, there's a platform called Wildlife Insights, and this has come out of Google, and, and it's also a, an alliance with a few larger conservation organizations globally uh, and they do just that you can upload your camera trap or, or drone pictures to wildlife insights and their technology will identify how many and what species of animals are in your pictures filtering out very quickly in minutes the redundant images which is so so cool and it shows you the power of ai in this space that's fantastic. Will you send me the link to put it in the show notes? Please? Absolutely. That would be fantastic. That David Attenborough, what an icon. I mean, how old? I think he's 90 now, isn't he? He is a, a global treasure and we must protect him at all costs. I know. I'm just going, please don't go out there. How old are you? I hope you put a whole team of people looking after you. <laughs> he needs to be immortalized somehow. If there's I any know. researchers out there listening, I, working on, um, you know, aging, please save David Attenborough. I know. And that voice of his, you know, I live in, I live in Victoria and Melbourne and I live in Sassafras and we're right in the, um, in the Dandenong Ranges in the forest and the lyre birds, of course, are pretty prolific well prolific I use that in inverted commas and he did the skit about the lyre bird that's very quiet and doesn't move around and then the next thing it went it went berserk. you know those skits that he does when animals don't do what they meant to do I had to laugh <laughs> I thought it would happen on my doorstep so that the award's not talk to me a little bit about this I know um some women uh, actually nominated themselves and others nominated people. It makes no difference to me. The important thing is that for next year, women need to get out there. And women, ladies, anyone listening to this in this um, 
that you think you could be a contender in any of the categories, feel no shame. Nominate yourself. Don't wait to be nominated because it's quite a robust application that you need to go through. And I think it, it caught some of the women a little bit unawares that you do actually need to put a bit of information where you need to discuss your work. Talk to me how you experienced the whole um, process. Uh, I nominated myself and it's been one of the biggest learnings for me in my startup journey, because if you're not going to promote yourself, who will? Uh, Wonderful. Let me just stop there. Now, let's just say that again. (laughs) I love that. I I was hoping that you would have just nominated yourself. Ladies, stop being shy and coy. Celebrate your work. (laughs) I mean, a lot of research shows that women are less likely to put themselves forward for you know whether it's an award or whether it's a promotion at work so uh really don't underestimate yourself I think as women unless we tick every single box that an opportunity presents itself we're not going to put ourselves forward for it and particularly in the startup space it is it has taught me how to throw perfection out the window and as a as a perfectionist that has been a really big hurdle to overcome but has also given me confidence to put myself forward for opportunities like this and you know the women in AI group are hugely accepting of all the technology that falls under the AI banner so it doesn't you don't just have to be working on AI or machine learning algorithms to uh, be included in, in these awards you could be working on big data you could be working on advanced analytics you could be working on internet of things so uh, I think it's really important to to get the word out there about you know AI is all encompassing The biggest opportunity here and the reason why I think people should nominate themselves or if you don't want to nominate, just, you know, send it to your your husband, your colleague, your friend, your partner uh, and say, will you nominate me because I don't want to do it myself. Because the biggest opportunity here is not actually winning the award. It is connecting with all of these incredible women in AI uh, and networking with this aligned group of women and just hugely passionate and supportive group of women. Uh, I think like the saying here, and hopefully I don't butcher it, the saying here goes, shoot for the moon. And even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And I think the AI, the Women in AI Awards is a perfect example of that. Listen, you, we will probably need to read the run this three times, like everyone so that I can hear it again and again. I think when women, it's been found that women apply for jobs, that they look at the the job, um, the specs, and they go, okay, I, I qualify for about 95% of it. I don't think I can I can apply for this job. Men look at it and they go, oh, about 65, 70. Yep, I'm ideal. I've got, I'm in the lead for this. I've got a shot, you know. I think this, I'm so glad you said throw this perfection out of the, because there's no room for perfection in a startup. So I'm glad you've got that mustard right at the get-go. Um we don't do ourselves any favors and I think it's out of fear of rejection right it's always out of a fear that we're going to fail or fear of rejection and and that's that's been really prominent in me in starting up my business and applying for awards like this but I think people celebrate just giving it a go um and yeah you absolutely need to throw perfection out the window I had a a mentor tell me a couple of months ago need particularly in the startup space you have to have a bowl of rejection every morning for breakfast and the more comfortable you get with rejection the more likely you put you you are going to put yourself out there so um yeah perfectionism is out rejection is in 
you know what it's a thing and and i don't even want to ask people that i've interviewed on the show what could i be doing better because in case they actually tell me like nikki your interview style is just like it's just all i've as as andra says i'm very unique in how i do it but the thing is you do actually need to get feedback and you need to be comfortable that it's not um look i prefer this because I don't ask everyone for feedback because I don't think everyone's got your best best interest at heart so do be careful who you ask because you want it in kindness and love and they're not trying to to kill you and knock your knees out from under you they want you to actually progress and get better and I think you always have a gut feeling as to you know who's got your best interests uh, at heart and who doesn't and I think that's kind of our superpower as women is that we have that intuition and that gut sense that perhaps our male counterparts don't have. Uh, and so, you know, go out there and ask for feedback. And if it doesn't land for you, you don't have to take it. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. And it's not the end of the world if you don't agree with it. And it's not the end of the world if someone doesn't like you or agree with you. And I think that's also, I was listening to a talk about as women, we're very programmed to be liked. Just as you said, we want, it's it's in our DNA. We somehow think we have to be liked for everything. And it comes as a great shock when you find out someone doesn't actually like you and you go, no, they just don't know me. And they go, yes, they do know you and they still don't like you. <laughs> I think this is hugely reflective of the participation of women in the startup ecosystem in Australia. Like, less than 16% of startup founders are female. And I think that's because we, we are so um, not, we take feedback really personally sometimes. We're afraid of rejection. We are perfectionists. And uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for women to enter into the startup space. So yeah, again, I would encourage anyone out there that if the feedback's not landing, don't take it. And I talk to so many people every single week and they give me so much feedback on my startup that I just have to, I've learned very quickly what, what to take and what not to take. So personally, what does this award mean for you? Oh, this award, well, I mean, awards was incredible. Winning in particular, the, the AI and climate award uh, was huge recognition for me as a conservation tech, biodiversity tech founder, because biodiversity and wildlife conservation are often left out of the climate change discussions. Uh, and they actually go hand in hand. You cannot have progress towards climate change without having the biodiversity discussions. So I really, really thank the Women in AI Awards for recognizing the importance of biodiversity in climate change through this award. And then winning the Trailblazer Award, to be honest, I was absolutely shocked to, to win the Trailblazer Award. Um, and again, is huge recognition for the power AI and technology has to tackle some of these really challenging global issues that no one has really seemed to nail down yet. So yeah, really exciting. It's also been incredible exposure to industries that I haven't yet had access to. So, um, you know, access to industry partners like AWS and Microsoft and even the more academic space with CSIRO. Uh, these awards have allowed me to make connections and network with these types of organizations, which is only help, helping to grow the startup much faster than I could have done before it. Listen, I'm so happy to hear that. And please do me a favor contact all of them you know all these sponsors regardless of who sponsored your category i'd be hitting them all up and going is there ways we can collaborate um 
do you want me to come and talk somewhere you know really make this work for you because it's a huge huge honor and you've got this for the whole year now before next year someone else comes and gets another you know they get the award in this in this category so make the absolute most of it is is all i can say yeah absolutely and a few of uh, i've already had conversations with quite a few of the sponsors which is which has been awesome and uh yeah it's such an incredible opportunity i'm so so honored well, congratulations again. And I was thrilled. I watched you come up to the stage, not once, but twice. And I could see you were you were a little bit, um, you were very surprised with your trailblazer. You richly deserve it. Thank you so much. You spoke about a mentor. How important is a mentor to you and just to our audience, um, particularly women out there? What's your advice to them? Mentors have been absolutely pivotal in my career. So I have a mentor that that kind of took me under her wing when I was an undergraduate student and has guided me to career opportunities that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I really credit my career path and, you know, even starting my startup Xylo Systems to her because she has just been so incredible to me so that is the power that a mentor can have for you and and for your career and I think the most important piece of advice I give particularly a lot of young women is it's never too early to start looking at mentors start thinking about where you want to go in your career and and what you want to achieve and seek out those women who have done that because they will be perfect mentors in guiding you I'm a big believer in, in giving back as well. So while I've had fantastic mentors um, that have trained me along the way, I'm also really passionate about uh, mentoring and guiding younger women, particularly young Indigenous women, into the science and tech space because we are so underrepresented, particularly in tech. So I often go back and, and talk to my old high schools um, and encourage the, the young girls there to consider conservation STEM as a career opportunity and even through the Women in AI Awards, I've now joined uh, the CSIRO's uh, Indigenous Youth, Indigenous Women's uh, STEM mentoring program. So now I get to give back to uh, Indigenous girls and, and help them along their career, which I didn't have. And I didn't have an example of uh, an Indigenous woman taking on STEM and taking on tech and even entrepreneurism. So I'm really, really pleased to um, be an example for them. Listen, congratulations and well done. I think there's nothing, um, and I know you're busy and you've got a lot on your plate and running a startup, but, you know, I think you cannot underestimate um, how important it is to give back your time permitting, obviously, you know, and, and obviously we all run businesses and things. So if you can, um, to just, it's one conversation you can have with a, a kid at high school that just completely changes her trajectory and her view on the world. And vice versa, you learn a lot from, you know, these, these young people as well. Uh, don't underestimate, yeah, the power of that. You, you might think you're busy, but this is so rewarding and, and you get to learn about yourself and about others along the way. Camille, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm just so wrapped for your award and I know this is uh, meant and it is going to mean a lot for you. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? I think the only closing thought I would like to leave the, the listeners with is that if you're thinking about pursuing a career in, in tech, in AI, in innovation, 
don't think twice. I, you will always have that niggling thing in the back of your mind saying, you should do this, you should do this. Give it a go, take a risk. You never know where it will, end, where it will take you. I mean, this is where I've, I've ended up following that niggle and following that push. So um, yeah, give it, a, give it a go, take a risk. That's excellent advice. And if they want to contact you, where, where's the best place? Uh, you can jump onto LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to contact uh, me and also connect with uh, Xylo Systems, my startup. We're also on pretty much any social media platform. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, um, are the two main channels that we also work on. So yeah, connect anywhere. Fabulous. You have now got the invite for Camille. So hit her up on LinkedIn is probably the best place and connect with her and follow her journey. Camille, thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much, Nikki. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here today. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you have a fantastic rest of the day wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to your company next week again. Mm -hmm.